0: Revelation 19, which is what our passage today, is a study in contrasts. It is a it is an intense, fearsome passage, and wonderful. You know, as, as Revelation draws toward its end, it gets more and more intense. That's part of, as we've talked about before, that's part of one of the devices of the book is intensification. It's recapitulative or recursive. It repeats itself. I think seven times and in, in line with, uh, Hendrickson in his uh, more than conquerors commentary on revelation, which is, I think the first printing was, uh, 1939 pre just right as the, right as the second world war was, was breaking out, which is appropriate. Um, so it's repetitive, but it's also in an in intensive, it gets more and more intense as the, as the scene repeats, as the time period that repeats seven times, um, repeats over and over again, which is, that, that, that phrase didn't make sense, but the time period that, that is repeated seven times throughout the book is the time between the, the two advents of Christ, his first coming and then his second, that's the, that's the period of Revelation that repeats over and over again in the book, it's recursive, but as it does that, it gets more and more intense, so we're toward the end of the book, and it's just super intense, and it's a study in contrast, I titled this, this uh, message A Wedding and a Funeral, um, it's it, the joy and the wrath of the lamb. And we see the joy of his people praising him. And then we see him bringing his people to himself at a banqueting table, uh, the wedding feast of the lamb, which is what we are heading to. We who are, are the lambs by faith, who follow him, who look to him, who trust in him, who love him because he first loved us. Uh, we That's what we're heading to is a feast. And that's something wonderful to keep in mind. As we labor on and as we endure and as we persevere and as we're shunned and as we share the gospel and as we're in these shadowlands. After that, that is followed by something that a lot of people just like to skip over. It's so tempting. I'm not just talking about preachers who want to tickle people's ears. It's always, it's always nice, just nicer to tell people things that are nice. Not just preachers, but also as we share the gospel, it's so easy to skip over this aspect. Flee from the wrath to come. Jesus, is going to return and he's going to crush all opposition. All those who do not hide in him by faith will have to stand on their own two feet and face his justice. That is something we do not want to face without being covered in his righteousness by faith. So we see the rider, the white rider. If you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, Gandalf is the white rider who appears on the morning of the fifth day to rescue uh, to rescue them at Helm's Deep. This is a picture of Jesus. He's going to come again uh, in purity. It's a white horse, right? He's going to come again in purity. He's going to come martially. He's going to come to war against all who oppose him. Satan and his enemies, all evil, all who have decided not to look to him by faith and to to stand up to God on their own merits or demerits. Um, And he will make a quick end of all his enemies because he's God. So it's a study in contrast. The first thing I want to look at, point one, is just God's judgment. We see that in verses one through five, and there's praise for it. Let me go ahead and read. Let me go ahead and read the passage. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, "Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. So God is a God of vengeance, and He will, He will avenge." We don't need to worry about that. We can extend the mercy and grace offered in Jesus Christ because there is an end and all will be made right. Either Christ will pay for injustice is done or those who perpetrate them will. Okay. Uh, they, they will be paid for, though, because God is just. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to take justice in our own hand. Um, we just get to preach the gospel in love. Okay. And lay our lives down. And the power of God goes out as we do that. That's all commentary. Okay. Verse three, once more, they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke goes, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God. So he's taking, he's executing justice, right? Um, and, And what do they do? Are they embarrassed about that? No, they fall down and worship. It's a good thing that God is just. It's a good thing that he finishes evil. Okay. Uh, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, which essentially represents all of humankind and all creation, they fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, who fear you, who fear Him, small and great. So it is our duty and privilege to praise God. It's a command. Praise Him. Then I heard, verse six, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted to her it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me these are the true words of god then i fell down at his feet to worship him but he said you must not do that it's sort of comic here right i'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of jesus worship god so this is a glorified uh, I think I can say that, even though Christ hasn't returned, yet, this is a glorified saint, and 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 uh, so amazing will be the transformation that John is. Te- he fall, he's not just tempted; he falls down to worship him. He's this is a glorious being. This is where we're headed, and this man doesn't even have his resurrected body yet, right? Okay, you also do that. Just worship Jesus, right? I worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, so that's. That is the the judgment of God, uh, and that is the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now we're moving on to the third third movement in this chapter. Um, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems and and crowns, bejeweled crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Let me just say... If you want to remember this chapter, just remember that. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. That right there is one image that that gives you the dual sense of who God is. He's both full of mercy and full of justice. And in doing both, in giving out mercy and justice, he is loving. He's always loving in all of his acts. He can't act out of part of his character or only one of his attributes. He always acts out of the fullness of his character. What I mean by that is, as you unpack that symbol, his robe is dipped in blood. It's dipped in... in, uh, it's dipped in his own blood. It reminds us of the fact that he was willing to die for us so that we wouldn't have to die, so that we wouldn't have to be crushed by God's judgment. He faced it for us. But if we do not choose to, to hide in him by faith and allow him to absorb the wrath of God in our place, we will be crushed by his justice. We will not be able to stand. We will not even be able to, be, to come close to standing. Our blood will be on his garments because he is a just God. Um, it's dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the word of God. So we know this is Jesus for, for a lot of reasons. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 about the Messiah. He will tread the winepress with the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with uh, with it, the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns the sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with his flesh. OK, this is the word of the Lord. I told you it's a study in contrasts. it's a wedding and a funeral. God's judgment verses one through five. It's a good thing. Again, like I said, that, 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 that's what we have to start out with. It, God's judgment is avoided by us when we're talking to unbelievers. We're squeamish about it. That's not what we see in heaven, though. Those, the way that people act in heaven is, a, is the way that we ought to act on earth. It's to be instructive. They're not embarrassed about God's judgment. They praise him for it. It's a good thing. Evil is bad. It's good that uh, God will end it. It's a good thing. Now, we deserve to be part of those who are ended. Everybody does. For nobody is without sin, no, not one. We've all gone our own way. But he offers a way of escape through his open arms on the cross. But not everybody's going to take that. So the fact that he is going to end evil is something worthy of the highest praise. And those in heaven uh, show us the way. We ought not to be ashamed of it. We ought not do anything but glory in it and that ought to be part of our gospel message flee from the wrath to come Um, so verse 3 talks about the smoke from the great prostitute and those that are with her in her judgment the smoke in her just being burned up by fire it says it goes up forever and ever in verse 3 and some Use verse three here uh, to argue for the irreversible and unending nature of God's judgment. God is infinite, and so sin offends him in every part of his being infinitely, in his infinitude. Um, and, and because of that, I mean sin is an infinite. It's against him. Psalm 51, 4. And it's therefore infinitely offensive. And, and because he's just, it must be paid for infinitely. So it's an argument for the infinity, the unending nature of hell. Why it lasts forever against annihilationism, which is the doctrine that uh, those outside of Christ will will uh, suffer in hell, but not forever. They'll be burned up and destroyed and annihilated. No, we believe in the eternal conscious suffering of the wicked who refuse to flee to Christ by faith, which is a compulsion for sharing the gospel, among other things. Um, it's also why only God could have paid, uh, if, in, if indeed this is... Uh, Well, the truth that I'm expounding is also I'm not I'm not sure that the smoke going up forever and ever is a a great argument for the infinity of hell. I believe in it. Um, I believe in the unending nature of hell. But um, some some people use this as a as a verse to argue that. But it's also why um, this, this truth about how we our sin offends God. And it offends every part of who he is. It's also why God only God could have paid our offenses in full. Because only an infinite being can pay an exhaust an infinite penalty. He did this on the cross. He said it's finished. He's worthy of praise. So that's the first point. Um, God's judgment. It's good a good thing that he's going to finish evil uh, and sin. So the next the next uh, move here is to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So his his saints are praising him for his justice, and then they are invited to the feast. So all of history can be described as God preparing a bride for his son. So just, if you want to think about the whole move of history and the whole Bible, how do you sum it up that way? It is, all of history is God preparing a bride for his son. This is the culmination right here. Guys do not need to feel uneasy about the fact that we, if we are in Christ, we are called to be part of the bride of Christ, the church, and he's going to bring us to himself. It's not sexual. It's not sexual. Uh, boys and, and 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 grown men can get squeamish because we misunderstand, right? Marriage, marriage in all of its intimacy and intimacy, and it's in the way that it's intended to be, right? The best of marriages, even in a broken world with with sinful people, the intimacy, the satisfaction, the companionship, the knowing and the being known uh, that God designed for marriage to be, all that is a, is a small, one single and small mouthful of the feast, the unending feast. Uh, in the new creation that is coming when we're brought face to face with our maker and our redeemer, the one who purchased us for himself by himself from hell with his blood. So all that love will color and enrich and drip down into and, and permeate and shoot out through every relationship in the new creation that we have horizontally as well. The love of God in Christ and between us and God will pour through us to one another. It's going to inform every and drive everything we do, all of our building our inventing, our adventuring, our relationships, our exploring, our work, our play, our study, our rest. So that's, don't, don't be squeamish. Um, okay. Now it's, it's, you know, bit of a sidebar here, but it's, it's the revelation is just so full of It has a high, what theologians call a high, high Christology, which means that Christ is so clearly pictured as having all power, is worthy of all praise, and is being fully God and is accomplishing our salvation. And this is an example of that, sort of the negative, that um, in 19, verse 10, it's one of those classic moments. It's not the only time, but toward the end of the book, John, a couple times at least, maybe three, uh, falls down and worships a creature. He doesn't realize it's a creature. They're so glorious. They're so glorious having been redeemed and glorified or partially glorified that he thinks that he just can't even help himself. He hits the deck. Maybe it's Jesus. Uh, But the mere weight and substance and beauty is pushing John down to the ground. And he's just like, oh, you you know, he's worshiping. And they they quickly, and it's recorded here, right? It's recorded here because they want us to know no one is worshiping. They quickly pull him up off his, stop doing that. Stop. We're in a place where that cannot be done. Only God gets worshiped. And never forget, those, everyone who wrote the Bible believed that God, in one God only, one creator, who was only one being, who was without beginning, who is, who is by his very nature necessary. He's always existed, and he always will. Every other, we, we yawn when we hear that, but every other, every other, um, every other religion surrounding the Jews... Believed otherwise. Believed that the gods were many and came about in various ways through sexual um, propagation and, and in other ways. Um, not the Jews. So every, everyone that wrote the Bible, including John, um, believed in, in the truth, which is that God is, is one and there's only one God and that he's always existed, and that only he, only he deserves worship, and he's a jealous God. Because if we worship anything else, he loves us. If we worship anything else, we don't work right. We're made to worship him. It's the gas we run on. It's the gas we run on. Do you want to eat poison? Does God, does your parent want you to eat poison? No, it's going to hurt you. God doesn't want you to worship anything else because it's going to hurt you. It's how we work best to worship him. So John is pulled up off the floor, as it were. But my point is this. Jesus is worshipped thoroughly with full-throated praise in this book egregiously, can I say that, over and over and over and over again, Jesus is given full worship, worship that belongs to God alone. Ergo, therefore, Jesus is fully God. In this monotheistic culture that is dedicated, seriously, severely, intensely dedicated to the worship of only one God, Jesus is worshiped. He is fully God. He became fully man and remains fully man and fully God, the God-man, to bring us as a man, to bring us men, sinful men, to God by becoming sin in our place on the cross. He represented us perfectly as a man. He was able to pay it perfectly as God. Wonderful. So we see that here. Um, You know, again, verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. You know, all of history, history is headed toward what? this, a fiesta, a party, a feast. God is not a spoilsport. We are headed toward a party. All of history is God making a bride ready for his son. It's going to be the ultimate throwdown bash. Uh, Satan is the spoil sport. God made, he holds all pleasure, Psalm 1611, in his right hand. He created all pleasure. He created sex. He made all the crazy, wacky creatures that we see. He, he is beauty. He made be- all beauty comes from him. He didn't. He didn't create beauty. He is beauty, and all beauty. Is, I won't say is an emanation from him because it's separate from it's distinct from him, but it comes from his beautiful mind, and creativity and work. And uh, Satan is the one that twists God's good creation. He hates parties. He hates fun. He makes only. Misery. He's an imitator. He takes what God creates and he twists it. So sex isn't Satan's, but God made sex and he made it within certain bounds, just like anything good, right? Like go drive in India. No offense to India. I love India. I absolutely love the country. I love I love places where everything's happening at once. Driving in India is like the most dangerous thing you could ever do. It's more dangerous than like jumping off a mountain with no parachute. I mean it's insane. There are no lines. There are people going in different directions, like literally I saw a guy on a horse a boy on a horse riding bareback against traffic oncoming traffic uh, it was it's that's the india welcome to india i mean first thing we in in getting me into bangalore the first thing as we left the airport that we saw on the on the ride to our place was a guy sitting in the middle of the road with his knee looked like it had been through a meat grinder and he just had gotten hitting off his moped and nobody was stopping because that's so normal and, and for other reasons their worldview et cetera, et cetera the hindu worldview he must have deserved it blah blah that's a different sermon, but go read the book. On that note, by the way, if you're interested, um, the book that made your world by by Vishal uh, uh wonderful book about how our worldview, the Western worldview, human rights, etc., have all come from the Bible. Um. So, no, Satan. All things, all things uh, that are good have delineations. They have rails, like. You know, the lines, the, the, the lines on a road, on a highway, allow us to drive safely and to drive fast and to drive well and to understand what's happening and to not get in wrecks and to be safe. But the lines, the rules in a sport, the literally the, the outside, if you go outside of this, you're out of bounds. The rules of this meet, this in this goal, in this basket equals two points. Um, this is a foul. This is how long the time limit. Those things don't stifle a game. They, they make a game without any lines, without any rules, without any whistles, without any fouls, without any point system. There's not it's not a game. It's just nothing. Um, sex within, it was a bit of a sidebar, but sex within, God made sex to be within certain boundaries. That's the best, not the worst. God gave Adam and Eve delineations and boundaries in the garden, you know, eat from every tree, but not from this one, because that's how pleasure works. That's how joy works within a, within a, um, Thus far and no farther, you know, the ocean has boundaries. That, that's a good thing. It's a bad thing when it overflows its boundaries, people die. Um, and so uh, sex within marriage between a man and a woman in, in a covenant is the way it was made to be. When it goes, when it spills out over those boundaries, which Satan loves, he loves to take that good thing, sex, and spill it out over boundaries, saying no boundaries, erase them. That's twisting it. That's perverting it. Uh, man, between a man and a man, between a woman and a woman, outside of marriage, between a man and a woman, uh, all these things, uh, between a man and a beast, like all these are, are spoken against the law, not because God's a spoil sport, but because he knows what he made and he, how he made it to work best. That's just one picture of the fact that God, we're all headed toward a party. God is not a spoil sport, Satan is the is spoil sport. Um, God invented pleasure, he possesses it all. He gives it to whom he will, dispensing it freely and gladly to those that he can trust, who trust him. Um, and we're all lawbreakers. Christ kept the law for us. And when we hide in him, our law breaking is expunged. It's paid for. And we begin to want to obey the father. Not because we have to. He did in our place, but because we get to, because we trust him. We, our relationship has been right. It's been changed through the son. Um, verse eight talks about. It says it was granted her, the bride, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. She's dressed in, how is the church dressed? She's dressed in fine linen. Um, The church is, uh, what does that fine linen symbolize? Remember John is, he's doing so many things through symbols in this book, just absolutely packed. And he's always going back to to the Old Testament. He's drawing from the Old Testament. What does it mean that the church is dressed in linen? Priests were dressed in linen. Um, they were de- they were dressed in linen because you don't sweat in linen. It's a cool garment they Remember, this is the in the ancient Near East it's hot. It's hot for a lot of a lot of the year. Sweat is associated with what? The curse. Work is good. But when you work and it's hard and it's toilsome and it's boring and it's laborious, uh, the pain associated with work is the, is part of the curse. So sweat is just a sign of that curse. Priests were to image in every way. Um, being in a creation free from curse. And ultimately all of the, all of the earth when, uh, is to, is, will become a temple, a house for God once again, where he dwells with us, with his people in peace through, through Jesus. Um, so the church is, is a church of, it's a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19, we're called a kingdom of priests by Peter and in other places. Um, and so what are priests to do? Priests are those that bring the guilty to God in peace through the sacrifice of an innocent. we How do we do that? We proclaim the gospel. We we hold out Christ for others. Uh, and, and that is how we express our reign. Um, but but he mentions that the, the linen, um, he says that the, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It matters how we live. But we live, we are able to do righteous deeds because of Of the righteous one that we trust in, who gives us a new heart that seeks to please God, uh, he makes us right with the Father, he restores that relationship, and that right relationship shows itself through good works. look these people they 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 aren't they don't become the bride by doing good stuff. The next verse talks about how they're all invited we're invited in. Through the work of Jesus Christ, through His torn body and shed blood, there's an invitation. Without that invitation, we will never be invited to the wedding. But those who are, who have been invited by the Son, um, have been clothed, and and they show themselves um, as followers of the Lamb, as as ones who have, who have been restored, whose sins have been forgiven, and who have been given the righteousness imputed right, the righteousness of Christ, and who are being made more and more like him through faith by doing good works, right? Um, again, the good works don't make us children of God. We're made children of God through the work of another Jesus. Um, through sheer It's a sheer gift, through no good of our own, but we show that we're his as we're transformed with the fruit of our lives, with our character, with uh, love. Uh, with loving our enemies, with laying our lives down. Um, let's move to the wrath. Finally, to the wrath of the Lamb, verses 11 through 21, the close of the chapter. Again, it's it's this terrific uh, move from a wedding to a war, uh, a war that the Lamb he calls the saints to himself as as, a, as an army, but he he vanquishes his enemies with the breath of his mouth. He's a terrifying figure, and no no evil uh, spirit or man stands a chance against him. He's God. Um, how can we move from such a wonderful scene to such a terrible one? Look, this is again not something to be embarrassed about. Uh, it is something to proclaim that God will end evil and injustice. Do we really want Hitler to to walk to walk away scot free? We don't. We know. We have the sense that uh evil has to be punished, that injustice has to be made right, that sins have to be punished. We don't, we don't, but we want to escape. We don't, either we're proud and think we don't deserve that. We, yeah, we, we'll, we'll get away because of our good behavior. That's wrong. Or we, or we're scared. We think, um, I deserve that. And we're right. We do. And so we don't, we don't want to think about God's justice. But the fact is that the cross, the cross pro- provides a way. For all of us who deserve the justice of God, which would end us, which would vanquish us, uh, to be placed on Christ, Um, he extinguished God's wrath and showed God's justice on the cross. So anyone who looks to him will escape the wrath of God and trusts in him and will be saved and will be made a child of God. Um, But those who don't, they will have to pay down to the last penny and that is part of the good news of the gospel. And we need when we preach the gospel again, we need to preach flee from the wrath to come. Yes, the cross shows brilliantly and better than anything else the, the love of God. But it also shows um his justice. The cross uh displays his mercy so brightly. But it also displays his truthfulness, his justice. Um there's a verse in Romans 3 that says that God because of what Jesus did on the cross, in His life and in His death, God is able to be both just. He's able to show us that He is just. He doesn't wink at sin. He's just. Sin will be paid for. That's one of the things the cross shows us: how seriously God takes sin. He's able to be both just through the cross, and at the same time, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, He's able to make. He's able to. He's able to um, declare as righteous. Sinners. At the same time, to show us mercy. Why? Because because Jesus Christ uh, pays for, pays the debt that we've racked up, that we owe. God doesn't wink at it. It has to be paid for, either by Christ in our place, or by us. Um, let me just finish by saying that Um, Verse 15 draws from and unpacks Psalm 2 um, when it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe, this is verse 16, and on his thigh he has a name written. It's like a tattoo, right? King of kings and lord of lords. He's not just the savior, he's the king. We have this urge today. You're seeing this a lot uh, in liberal Europe and in America, too, in the West. Well, really, it's all over. I mean, China as well. But this urge, this worldwide impulse, and it's always been there. It was there with the Roman Empire. It was there with every great empire. It was there with Alexander. It was there with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, This impulse to bring the world together under one rule. It's there because... We are made for it. We're made for a king. Adam and Eve were made. We're, we're, we were made to be subjects of the king. And when we rebelled, we wanted to be kings ourselves and to sit on the throne ourselves in a place that only God uh, ought to be sitting and does sit. And yet through Christ, he's, he seats us with him. But we have this impulse because we're made for that. And we see as we draw toward the end of the scriptures that God is taking us to that place where Jesus Christ will Not just, he's reigning now, but a lot of it's not obvious. It will be obvious. It will be overt. Every knee will bow. Every king and every potentate, from high people to low people, will bow before the king. And he will overtly and wonderfully rule over all. He will finish evil, and he will finish sin, and he will finish every spiritual and human enemy. And he will bring millions upon billions of sinners uh, to himself who has trusted in him and who have hidden in him and who have been made his children through his blood and his his life and his death. Um, It's really, you know, the rest of this chapter is really an unfolding of the last of the last verse or two of Psalm 2. It's it's sort of like an, uh, a half chapter long exposition of that psalm. And that psalm really helps. It's the portal to the whole Psalter, to all the psalms in the Bible. That's The psalms for the song book and the prayer book of God's people. And it, uh, it couples with Psalm 1. They're supposed to be read together as the opening, the foundation stone of the, of the psalm. It's the way that you enter into praying, praying to God, to talking to God, uh, to listening to God, to being in relationship with God, to singing to God. You know, Psalms 1 and 2 are. And what is the end of Psalm 2? How does it wrap up? Oh, oh there, now therefore, in light of everything that's been said, God's solution to evil is to set this king, his Messiah, Jesus, on the throne. Therefore, in light of that, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Here's the, here's the thing. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Do you see his justice there? The slightest injustice Jesus will take care of. He hates injustice. He hates evil. He will finish it. But he hung on our place and bore the wrath of God in our place for us to have a way of escape. And it finishes. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all what? Who take refuge in him. The final bit of advice from that portal into the Psalter. Is really unpacked and reflected here. Blessed are all they who take refuge in him, hide in him by fleeing to him by faith, by looking to the one who is lifted up in glorious ignominy on the cross to become a curse for us, to bear our curse, that we might be brought into the blessing of God as his bride. For he will reign forever and ever. We are all, my friends, heading either to a huge party or to war, bloodshed, death, and eternal misery. It is your choice. Choose wisely. Choose Jesus.